We're reading first this morning in Daniel's Prophecy, chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. We'll be taking uh, just a short peek at some other verses uh, in the context of that chapter. We'll begin here in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 1, remembering this is, that this is God's inspired and inerrant word deserving our careful attention. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related it, or related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision in the night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was also given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. It had, a large, it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. Verse 11 this is one of the phrases that Daniel repeats. Uh, I kept looking, then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to burning fire. And then in verse 21, I kept looking and that horn was waging war with the saints, and overpowering them. Now we turn to our text in, in Revelation chapter 13. We'll begin at chapter 12 and verse 13, and read through chapter, uh, verse 10 rather, chapter 13. Revelation 12, beginning at verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. 
But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. I saw one of the heads as if it had been slain, and this fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, because he gave authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who is able to wage war with him? There was given him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act forty-two months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell or those who tabernacle in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them, and with authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the Lamb who, was, who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated, please, as we turn to our psalm of preparation. And let's pray, asking the Lord to grant his blessing and the preaching and the hearing of his word. Give ear to our cries, O Lord, and give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church, what the Spirit says to the churches of all ages. We pray, O Lord, that you would grant that we would understand the difficult things that you have in your holy, wise, and perfect providence breathed out of the Holy Scriptures for our edification, for our good, 
Would you grant us now the Holy Spirit's power and the efficacy of his ministry in our hearts as we seek to understand what you have revealed in your holy word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Then I saw, John says, chapter 13, verse 1, that I saw here in verse 1 marks the second section of the fourth cycle of visions that began in chapter 12 and verse 1. In that chapter, in Revelation chapter 12, we saw in our exposition a dramatization of the spiritual warfare in which we engage as God's people. It shows us how the great red dragon, Satan, failed to destroy the male child, Jesus, and that now the devil vainly rages against the church in his anger over inevitable defeat. Though the devil has been defeated, we also noted he nevertheless has the ability, is is granted the ability to oppress the saints to, to wage war against them. As we read there at the end of chapter 2, the dragon uh, goes off being enraged with the woman to make war with the rest of her children. That is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 13 explains in further detail the nature of Satan's persecution of the church. This chapter describes the agents through whom Satan executes his persecuting will. These agents are the demonized political and religious powers of the earth whom the devil uses as his instruments to persecute the church of Jesus Christ and to deceive the ungodly. Chapter 13, John draws predominantly from Daniel, especially Daniel chapter 7 that we've read this morning. And here in our text, in verses 1 through 10 in chapter 13, believers are warned to be discerning about falsehood and not to participate in false worship propagated by the devil and his worldly agents, in order to persevere in the faith. I'm going to look at two things broadly this morning. The identity of the beast from the sea, and the beast from the sea as a counterfeit Christ. The identity of the beast from the sea and the beast of the sea as a counterfeit Christ. Now we're wading again, uh, as I've said through our exposition in Revelation, into deep symbolic waters. Uh, And chapter 13 is perhaps the most difficult 
passage in Revelation to understand. Its symbols are difficult to discern. So bear with me and remember that although we're dealing with theoretical stuff here in chapter 13, we're, we're dealing with things theoretical and theological, that theological is, uh, the, theology is always applied. Uh, theology is always designed to be applied in the life of the believer. So there'll be some theological application, some things that will help you understand better, Lord willing, understand uh, some of these symbols, what they mean, how we should understand them. There'll be some practical theological application as well. So in the first place then, the identity of the beast from the sea. If we had read on, you'll see there's also a beast from the earth. And so we've got two beasts to deal with here in chapter 13. The beast from the sea and the beast from the earth, or better, the beast from the land. Uh, so the identity of the beast from the sea. Depending on the translation that you are reading, uh, it's, it's, it's either the Apostle John who stands on the sand of the sea or the dragon who stands on the sand of the sea, whether in the last sentence of chapter 12, verse 17, or the first sentence of chapter 13, verse 1. This is due to variants in the Greek manuscripts. Greek scholars uh, have a tendency to count manuscripts, and they also put weight on certain manuscripts, which seem to be the most reliable manuscripts. And uh, so there are these two, there are, there are these differences in, uh, the, in the Greek manuscripts with regard to who it is exactly who's standing on the seashore and uh, whether it's John or, or whether it's uh, the dragon standing on the seashore. Truth be told, it makes little difference whether it's John standing on the seashore observing the beast rising up out of the sea, which we can see might make sense in the flow of Revelation here, or Satan, the dragon, standing uh, on the seashore, authorizing his agent, the beast, to wage war against the church. That could also make sense. What's significant in this vision is that John sees this beast rising up from the sea. In both Testaments, even as we read about those beasts uh, in Daniel coming up from the sea, both Testaments, uh, the old and the new, the sea is the chaotic region from which threat and rebellion arise, associated with the abyss, the place of uncleanness and hostility toward God. In God's people. Remember before Jesus permitted the legion of unclean spirits who tormented the garrisoned demoniac to enter the herd of swine at their own request. They pled with him not to send them back into the abyss. Luke chapter 8 verse 31. 
Jesus granted their request to enter the swine, but it was a small concession because the swine then carried them into the sea, into the abyss where they belong. The beast that comes up from the sea then uh, is the beast that John, uh, in John's earlier vision of chapter 11 and verse 7, came up from the abyss to wage war on Christ's witnesses. The imagery of the sea monster is used throughout the Old Testament scriptures to represent the evil kingdoms that persecute God's people. For example, Psalm 74, verses 13 and 14, uh, in, in these verses, God is spoken of as defeating Pharaoh as a sea monster in Israel's exodus from Egypt. Here in Revelation 13, the beast is depicted as a sea monster emerging from the sea who will wage war against the church. In chapter 11 and verse 7, uh, here in Revelation, the beast is shown to be associated with Satan, the angel of the abyss of chapter 9 and verse 11. But he's distinguished here in chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, from the devil. The beast from the sea reflects the dragon who invests it with malicious power. As a dragon, it has seven heads and seven horns. Uh, even as a dragon has seven heads and seven horns, uh, chapter 12 and verse 3, uh, so also the beast is its mirror image. It has ten horns and seven heads, chapter 13, verse 1. But the replication isn't exact. The dragon has the seven diadems or crowns on its seven heads, whereas the beast... Uh, from the sea has the seven crowns on its ten horns. The ten crowned horns of the beast are explained for us in chapter 17 and verse 12 uh, here in Revelation as being governors, rulers of the ten imperial provinces of the Roman empires, uh, Roman Empire. Uh, ten imperial, ten governors of the ten of ten imperial provinces. The seven heads are explained in chapter seventeen, verses nine through eleven, as the line of the Caesars. The beast uh, here, verse verse one, has on its heads blasphemous names. This points to. Uh, the, the false claims of deity made by earthly rulers, and especially, of course, the Caesars. The Roman emperors gave themselves the titles of Lord, Savior, Son of God, and Lord and God. Christians were persecuted because they refused to join the idolatrous emperor cult. In verse 2, John goes on to describe further 
the beast he saw as like a leopard with feet like those of a bear and having a mouth like the mouth of a lion. These three animals respectively symbolize swiftness and ferocity and springing upon their prey, tenacity in holding it and dragging it away, and a ravenous appetite for devouring. These are the same animals, recall, used to describe the first three of four great world empires in Daniel chapter 7, verses 1 to 6, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece. The fourth empire in Daniel's description there in chapter 7 of his prophecy, Rome partakes of the evil beast-like characteristic of the other empires, but is much worse. Daniel 7 verse 7 says, Behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. It had iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. The beast from the sea, here in Revelation chapter 13, is clearly the Roman Empire, about which Daniel prophesies there in Daniel chapter 7, which combine all the elements of the fierce opposition that had existed in the great empires that preceded it. And that the beast of from the sea is Daniel's fourth beast, the Roman Empire, is also evident from the fact that both of them speak arrogant boasts and blasphemies. Daniel 7, uh, verse 8, 11, and chapter 20. And then also wages war against the saints. We read that in Daniel 7, verse 21. In verse 6, John's description of this vision draws our attention to the beast's blasphemies against God. Specifically, he says, the beast seeks to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell, literally tabernacle, in heaven. Remember what Paul said of God's people. Philippians 3:20 Our citizenship is in heaven. Ephesians 2 verse 6 We're enthroned there in Christ. And officially Hebrews 12 verse 22 and 23 also Revelation chapter 5 verses 11 to 14 our worship takes place in the heavenly places with the myriads of the hosts of angels and the saints triumphant. The new covenant people tabernacle in heaven around God's throne. That's what we're doing today in worship. We're tabernacling. We're pitching our tent around God's throne. Joining ourselves with the heavenly hosts. 
and the saints triumphant in heaven to worship the Lamb and to worship the one who sits on the throne. In the very same breath, then, here in verse 6, in this vision to John, God tells the church both of the beast's cruel oppression of Christ and his church and their certainty of protection around the throne of God. The beast from the sea, then, is undoubtedly the Roman Empire. Even those who disagree with my view of Revelation admit this, that Daniel's fourth beast is the beast from the sea. However, it's not just an institution, but a person also. If you look at chapter 13, verse 8, you read, Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man. And his number is 666. Specifically, as we'll see when we consider the rest of chapter 13 next time, Lord willing, This man is the Emperor Nero. For now, in connection with this, we note from verse 5 that the beast was given authority to act for 42 months. We've seen that expression before. We've seen this this period of three and a half years expressed in, in terms of 42 months, in terms of 1260 days, in terms of a time and times and, a time, and half a time, three and a half years, half of seven. The fear of this period of 42 months, uh, or three and a half years, is a symbolic figure in a prophetic language. It signifies a time of trouble. When the enemies of God are, are in power, when judgment is being poured out, while God's people wait for the coming of his kingdom. Its prophetic usage isn't primarily literal. Many of the numbers, of course, we've we've seen this already in the 144,000 elect Israel uh, that were sealed, uh, Romans chapter 7, that that numbers are not always meant to be literal. Although it's interesting that the Roman Emperor Nero's persecution of the church did, in fact, last a full 42 months, from the middle of November, AD 64, to the beginning of June, AD 68. That's a documented historical fact. So this period of 42 months, therefore corresponds but isn't necessarily identical to the 42 months and 1260 days of chapter 11, verses 2 to 3, and the time and times and half a time in chapter 12 and verse 14. Now, here comes one of those theological 
applications that will perhaps uh, help you to understand one of the more difficult concepts of the Bible. In interpretive discussions, the question is discussed whether this beast from the sea should be associated with the Antichrist, the Antichrist. The answer is yes. If the Antichrist is biblically understood. The title Antichrist isn't used in Revelation. It's only used in John's epistles. Where the apostles spoke of those who opposed the revelation of Jesus. 1 John 2 and verse 18 contributes significantly to our understanding of this enigmatic person slash institution of Antichrist. Children, John writes, it is the last hour, and you have, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. According to this verse, the Antichrist is a figure who will appear in the end, but who's represented throughout church history by many individuals or institutions who are like him, who can be likened to the Antichrist who will come in the end. 1 John 4.3 adds that every spirit that does not confess Jesus is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and now is in the world already. So the spirit of the Antichrist is exemplified in the beast from the sea. He's not the Antichrist. The Roman Empire isn't the Antichrist, but, he's, but he's, uh, the characteristics of Antichrist are exemplified in the Roman Empire as it persecutes the church of Jesus Christ. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 3, Paul teaches that there will be an ultimate Antichrist before the coming of Christ, whom he named, remember, the man of lawlessness. Yet, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, is represented throughout the church age by the blasphemous powers in opposition to Christ. So much then for the identity of the beast from the sea. Corporately or generically, the beast is Rome. Specifically, it's Nero, the emperor Nero. Secondly then, the beast as uh, the beast from the sea is a counterfeit Christ. One of the most significant features of Revelation chapter 13 is uh, of the beast here in, in this 13th chapter of Revelation is his imitation of Christ the Lamb. In Revelation, Christ wears many diadems 
or crowns and has a worthy name written on him. Revelation 19, verse 12. So the beast has many crowns and bears blasphemous names on his many heads. Chapter 13, verse 1. Christ has people from every tribe and language and people and nations. Chapter 5, verse 9. So the beast assumes power over every tribe and people and language and nation. Chapter 13, verse 7. Christ is worshipped together with God. Chapter 7, verse 10. So the beast receives false worship together with Satan, the dragon. Chapter 13 and verse 4. Christ goes riding out on his white horse, conquering and to conquer. Chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. So the beast wages war against the saints to conquer them. Chapter 13, verse 7. In keeping with these counterfeits that we see spread out through uh, Revelation, one of the beast's heads we read here in chapter 13 is as if it had been slain, yet its fatal wound was healed. Verse 3, an imitation of Christ's death and resurrection. The linguistic parallel between John's vision of a lamb standing as if slain, chapter 5 and verse 6, and the beast's head, which appeared as if slain, chapter 13 and verse 3, is simply unmistakable. Jesus was slain, yet came to life, chapter 2 and verse 8. Now the beast is proclaimed as having received a, a fatal blow, yet it came to life, chapter uh, 13 and verse 14. Uh, here in Revelation chapter 13, same language is being used here. The counterfeit resurrection of one of the beast's heads brings amazement and worship from all those who dwell on earth. Here in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 13, whose names were not inscribed before the world's foundation in the book of life that belongs to, notice here in verse 8, the lamb who has been slain. Now, the various views of, of what's being symbolized by the fatal wound and, and healing of the beast's head, none of which is certain, I must say. I won't trouble you with all of them. I'll simply tell you that the one that appears to be most plausible is that the, the lethal wound on one of the beast's seven heads, which seemed to kill the beast, Verses, 13, uh, verses 12 and 14 of chapter 13 uh, say, refers to the decomposition of Emperor Nero's rule, resulting in his flight from Rome and his suicide at the age of 30 in the year AD 68. In the next year, civil war in the Roman Empire brought three men to imperial power, each 
for a few months in, in very quick uh, concession. Galba, Otho, and Vitellius. And then in AD 69, Vespasian, general of the Roman armies, was charged to put down an uprising on the part of zealots in, in uh, Judea. And he left his son, Titus, to continue the siege of Jerusalem and to complete it with the destruction of the temple and the city in A.D. 70. Vespasian, I know, I, I saw someone shake their heads, and I know this is a little bit mind-boggling. <laughs> um, maybe not. I, I could have misinterpreted that. Um, Vespasian returns to Rome to reestablish, to establish himself as emperor and to, to establish, reestablish order in the Roman Empire. So what seems to have happened is that the Roman Empire, empire died with, with what was going on under Nero, the collapse of the Roman Empire, it seemed was almost inevitable, and then it seems to come back to life. And that seems to be what's going on, uh, that the glory of the Roman Empire, so to speak, has returned after it had been a dealt a virtual death blow in the upheaval surrounding Nero, that it had come back from the dead. There's a sobering announcement in verse 7 of our text. An announcement that from an earthly perspective, the beast from the sea will conquer the saints. And it evokes an, an exhortation to uh, the listening church to endure suffering with perseverance. And this, by the way, is where we're moving into the more practical application for God's people. It evokes an exhortation to the listening church to endure suffering with perseverance, chapter 13 and verse 10. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. And notice that these words are introduced by the formula of verse 9. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. We've heard those words before, haven't we? These are the words, uh, these words echo the, the refrain in the letters to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. For example, chapter 2, verses 7, 11, and 17. So here's a dire prediction that captivity and death are unavoidable for those for whom these woes have been ordained. That's the Spirit's word to the churches. The beast will wage ongoing war against the saints, and in the eyes of the world, he'll overcome them, he'll conquer them by killing them. And that means that imprisonment 
and martyrdom are part of God's plan for his church in this age. We, it, it, it grieves our hearts when we see our brothers and sisters uh, undergoing persecution in other nations. But what Revelation teaches here, what the Spirit's word to the churches teaches us here, is that this is part and parcel of God's plan for the church of Jesus Christ in every age. In our age. And because suffering is the church's inevitable path to glory, the saints must demonstrate persevering faith. Notice this formula uh, in the last sentence of verse 10. Here is uh, the John writes, here, this here is formula in verse 10 identifies the response that is called for by the truth that precedes it. It's as though John is saying what's needed in this situation is. So he's speaking to you as a church. He's speaking to you as individual members of the church. Here's what's needed in this situation. Here's what's needed as you confront the truth that's being communicated in what has proceeded. He'll say it in slightly, uh, uh, he's saying what, what's needed in response to this vision uh, is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. That's what he says here in verse 10. Slightly different terms in chapter 14 and verse 12. What's needed here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. The church of Jesus Christ participates in God's kingdom. They participate in the rule of God's kingdom. We've seen here in Revelation that he has made us rulers with him, together with him. We've been raised up and seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus as rulers. But since our pilgrimage to the kingdom of heaven, of the, the heavenly kingdom of joy, passes through the wilderness of affliction, Our present responsibility, the Spirit is saying to the church, is perseverance. Perseverance in the truth of God's Word. Perseverance in the faith that God has laid down for us in His Word. We typically think of the concept of the saint's perseverance as a theological truth that's related to the believer's security in Christ. It's because God is sovereign and his grace is sovereign that we persevere. And to be sure, that, that's taught in the scriptures, that once you have been saved, you're always saved. Once genuinely born again, regenerated, given a new heart, 
given a, a, a heart of flesh in place of the heart of stone, granted the grace of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, nothing and no one can snatch you out of the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ, out of the hand of his God. That's the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. But here, the Spirit is speaking to us about our perseverance, that we are called to persevere. And it shows us that perseverance is lived out through times of testing. I know that many of you are going through times of testing. I know, I know that of some of you personally, because I've spoken to you about these trials and tests and afflictions. But I also know there, there are trials and testings going on that I don't know anything about. Because the members of the congregation haven't spoken to me about them. But it's perseverance in these times in which God is testing us by fire. That's the Spirit's word. After we've waded through all these symbols, after we've tried to understand the, 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 some of the theological application of, of this text, that's what the Spirit of God is saying. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Passage shows us that perseverance is lived out through times of through hard times in the Christian life. And even persecution. And you mustn't fall into the trap of thinking of biblical Doctrines as theoretical without understanding that every biblical truth must be made real in your lives. Some believers ask God to spare them from testing. Yet it's often testing, we read in Scripture, that proves the genuineness of our faith. And results in God being glorified. First Peter 1, verse 7, That the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable even when tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. How do we persevere? How are we called? To persevere. What are the tools that God has given us by which we may persevere? It's the truth of His Word. It's this precious, glorious, wonderful revelation that God has given us 
not only in Revelation, but throughout the Scriptures. The truth, this body of truth, which, to which the Bible refers as the faith in places. And our faith in this truth. How do we persevere? We believe in God's word. We seek to uh, grasp, to understand God's word. We wrestle with God's word as we're wrestling with, uh, with those uh, principalities and powers that are against us in evil spiritual realms. We wrestle with God's word and we uh, grapple with its truths and we hold on to it with tenacity and we believe it. And we trust in the great promises that God has given us in his word. We hold tenaciously to the truth of God's word and the purity of biblical worship and shun every form of false worship and every form of false teaching. Confessing our sole allegiance to Christ, our King, and bearing witness to his name wherever we go. Let's pray. God, as we have contemplated these uh, things, we remember uh, your apostles' words that some of the things which Paul wrote are hard to understand. And we confess, O oh Lord, that uh, the things that we're considering in Revelation are hard to understand. Yet, O oh Lord, we pray that you would help us to see, help us to understand, give us uh, insight into these symbols and help us to see their theological application. Help us to see what the Spirit says through these symbols and uh, that, are, that are pregnant with meaning and, and enable us, O oh God. Uh, you've told us what's needed here. Uh, you've told us what's needed in response to this vision of the beast from the sea. And we confess, O oh Lord, that it's hard for us to persevere when we're going through trials and difficulties. Keep us faithful, O Lord our God. Grant us faithfulness in the truth of your word. Grant that we would cling to it tenaciously, uh, like a life preserver in the midst of a raging sea of chaos, when we're being attacked by every side, when the devil is attacking us or attacking our families. Help us, O oh Lord God, to persevere in the faith. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.